the optimal life. So, Dr. Janelle, I'm on your website, and uh, one of the quotes you have on there is from James Baldwin. You say, James Baldwin mm -hmm. once said, quote, not everything that is faced will be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Why does that yeah. quote stand out to you? Well, I think the, the thing to acknowledge first is that James Baldwin um, was an incredible philosopher um, and thinker, and his ability to look deeply into what was going on in society at that time really brought us to the place where he um, spoke those words. And it resonates with me today because we have a tendency sometimes to ignore, sweep under the carpet, those things that need to be faced such that they can be changed so that we aren't living in a world full of anxiety and angst about um, the society around us, about our household and family members and the relationships that we have um, romantically, et cetera. So I think it's important to face those things that have once been swept under carpets such that we can actually see true change. And it's so easy to sweep things under the rug. It's easy to mm -hmm. ignore. It's easy to pretend that everything is just the way I want it to be. Mm -hmm. But yet and it's particularly, not. Yeah, yeah, particularly because of social media. Right. We just have to pop a picture up there and smile really pretty. But we have no idea what happened right before the picture was taken. Well, that's the problem with social media, too, is that we look at those snapshots of all these other happy people. And here we are down in the dumps. My life is not this. I don't ever mm -hmm. look that happy. Mm -hmm. And we compare ourselves. We compare our entire lives our entire day week month year to a two second picture image still frame that's shown to us mm -hmm. that's got to be uh, tremendously challenging in the line of work that you're dealing with because we're going to talk about the the black intimacy and the couples issues which is really what i want to get to but mm -hmm. you're helping people as a psychotherapist and a you're helping people in so many other areas when it comes to mental health what kind of mental health issues do you see because of social media? Yeah, I see a great deal of anxiety and depression um, that are connected to social media. Uh, we, I remember when Facebook first came out and there was a saying that Facebook broke up families and Facebook was um, creating these environments where people were irritated with one another because you can sit behind the screen and not real, really empathize because you could just tickety-tack and say something that you wouldn't normally say if someone were in front of you, or people were connecting um, with individuals who they hadn't seen in a long time. And so mm. they were reaching out in ways that ended relationships or created frustration and animosity in relationships, even amongst family members. Um, so I see a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression come through because social media and the I shouldn't say the the social media itself, but the way in which we engage in social media creates these environments that have tremendous challenges for relationships overall. Yeah, that's uh, I, I kind of wish it was never here. I think mm -hmm. life was a lot easier and more simple 
prior to the social media stuff. I mean, it does have its pros. Uh, it allows you to get your message out, but it's got so many cons and there's so many negative people and there's so much bashing online and it's easy for people to seep into your lives so much easier now to be penetrated emotionally mm-hmm. than it was 20 years ago. And then that's, that's an issue. That's um, true. I think that, that it's a matter of teaching people how to utilize social media. <laughs> and that's sort of what I do. Um, in essence, I'm teaching, teaching people how to manage their emotions, manage what they're seeing and how they respond to that. Because mental wellness is really about the ability to function socially and um, to be able to think and feel and act in ways that positively impact your physical and your social well-being. So that's what mental wellness is about. And if there's something that comes in and creates an environment that says, okay, I'm now going to disrupt this then we have to look at how are we responding to that? Because it is an inanimate object in essence. So mental illness is that moment where our thinking and our mood and our feelings and the daily functioning is disrupted. And we no longer have the ability to relate to those around us because of what we're seeing or doing. And that's generally speaking, we want mental illness if it exists to be diagnosed by a medical professional. Um, And at the same time, there are ways in which as a layman, you can see if someone's highly anxious or um, living with depression or unable to communicate, et cetera. Uh, Speaking of mental illness, you work with, you've been doing this for many years. So Mm -hmm. is it your belief uh, or your position that people are born predisposed with this some kind of gene where they're more privy to face mental illness or mental mm-hmm. health issues into their later adult lives? Is that kind of a, a genetic trait? I think it's both genetic and environmental. So there are some instances where trauma creates um, a disposition that later in life could provide the right foundation for um, many mental illnesses, some of which we cannot diagnose until adulthood, because it can look like being a teenager. Um, And then there are those who are genetically predispositioned to having difficulties with substance misuse and abuse, or anxiety exists and runs in the family, Um, depths of depression may run in the family. So it's both, you know, it's not chicken or the egg, it kind of, they can feed one another in Mm. a sense. When you are staring face to face with a patient or a client and you've had many sessions and you're trying to get them to get to the breakthrough Mm. and they're staring at you with the blank stare and they can't get there. It may be months, it may be years, they cannot get there. You've exhausted every single avenue to try to get this person to a better place. How do you personally handle those situations? So from a personal perspective, how does it impact me? From a professional perspective, where do you go with it? And yes, mm-hmm. also, does it? How, do you, how does it seep potentially into your personal life? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, from a professional perspective, I may need to make a referral. And I'm very comfortable with that. It is possible that there is um, something that's keeping them from having a breakthrough and that I don't know how to reach it. Mm. And I'm comfortable being able to say that. Um, and it could be anything from the, you know, the office setting that we are in, um, sometimes even the way that I respond to them or the my the sound of my voice even might create challenges. So we just need to figure figure that out. And it may take some time. It generally won't take me months to make a referral. If I'm not seeing some movement within the first, I'd say, four to eight sessions, we might need to make some changes. So your um, first, experience, I'm sorry, but your experience, I would I'm I'm taking that to uh, assume that your experience shows that, hey, within the first few sessions, there's usually some kind of positive movement. It might not be oh, full absolutely. breakthrough, but you see things fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Within the first four sessions, I generally can see that there's better communication um, when a client comes back and what they're, if they're doing the work, right? They have to do the work outside of the therapy room. So if they're doing the work, then they're going to find that they're communicating better they're going to find that they're able to relate to people around them better. They're going to have people responding to them and saying something's different. What are you doing? How did you change that? Their mood, the way they think, the way they feel about themselves even begins to make a change. Their own energy, just the people who are around them going, you're emitting something different than you have the Mm -hmm. last months or years. It's Absolutely. That's a that's a, a an interesting and, and good point. Okay, so that's from a professional. If you run into the wall, you have no problem saying, "Hey, maybe somebody else can work with you because I might not be uh, suited for this." But mm-hmm. what about personally, though? How does that impact you on on a daily uh, personal level? Well, honestly, when I leave my office, I leave my office, and I make sure that I leave everything there. If I judged what were happening here in that this space with my clients that would be difficult to just leave it there. I don't judge it because I recognize that everyone is trying to survive and everybody is dealing and working through something in their lives. So I really don't walk away with the weight of what my clients have relayed to me when I leave my office setting. And every now and again, I'll run out, run into someone in a public setting um, at the grocery store, in a restaurant, and they, you know, I may recognize them and they may say, you remember that? And I'll, I, no, I don't, but only because we're not in the setting for that. And we'll have that conversation. Make sure you bring that up in the next session. So you don't remember that when they're outside of the setting. How then can you provide them the proper treatment when they are back inside the setting? Uh, Your brain switches and then all of a sudden remembers? Oh, my personal life is my personal life. So when it's time to shut it off, I must in order for me to be able to function. I can't be the fullness of what they need if I don't take care of myself. Because quite often you see psychologists, they need to go talk to somebody because they're oh, carrying sure. they're carrying the weight of all of their clients. I mean, that's mm. heavy stuff on the daily. So I do have a therapist and I see a therapist, but I talk to my therapist about my stuff. And your stuff, and your stuff has nothing to do with 
you're able to compartmentalize it, which I'm not sure all therapists are able to do. Yeah. And I know that's got to be very difficult, but what I've learned is if I don't, then I'm not going to be my best self when it's time to meet with my clients. So I'll review their notes. I'll ensure that I'm taking the time to look at the treatment plan again and so forth. But my meditation time, my sound baths, my time and massages at the spa, my time with my friends and my family is mine. Mm. And you clearly wouldn't have the open-mindedness and clear head to author a book, (laughs) your latest book, Into Me See, Mastering Black Intimacy for the Relationship You've Always Wanted. That's right. And there it is is. on the screen. (laughs) So let me ask you the million-dollar question. Mm -hmm. Why do Black couples struggle with intimacy? Yeah. It's really quite interesting. We, of course, have all of the same challenges of communication, um, financial situations that arise, um, the biggest one being communication, really, that other people have. The strain that doesn't exist for everyone else is actually being Black in America. There is a heavy level of anxiety that comes with just walking around in the skin. And when you're trying to communicate through an anxious mind, constantly being in fight or flight or freeze mode 24-7, it can be very difficult to master any type of relationship, whether it's with family, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, or with a spouse or a partner. It's that much more challenging. And what we know is that statistics show us that African-Americans have greater anxiety and depression than any other culture. And those who are more affluent, it increases even more. When you say those who are more affluent, those Mm -hmm. folks experience greater levels of anxiety and depression? Yes. Why? Because they, they are more prone to encounter racism than those who are impoverished because they're living outside of their community. They're in suburbia, they're interacting in corporate spaces. So they're not as homogeneous in being in an African-American community where you're not gonna experience as much in terms of discrimination. So the African-American folks who are are more well-off, upper class, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting that those people actually struggle with intimacy at a greater level than the people that are living in the lower class communities? I don't know that I separated according to socioeconomics at all. I'm simply saying that anxiety and depression exist at a greater level. That's what the statistics show. I don't have a causality between the two as it pertains to intimacy versus in a lower socioeconomic status versus higher. What I do know is that the anxiety and depression that exists is very challenging to work through when you are talking to couples who aren't even communicating on a basic level. Now you have to work through the um, inability to find your words, stonewalling, shutting down, because you're so anxious or depressed 
the mood swings that exist, that now it makes it that much more challenging to have depths of emotional connection, spiritual connection, physical connection because of the tiredness of just being, let alone a cognitive connection to have the discussion about why am I feeling this way? Because sometimes, which is one of the things I talk about in the book, we just don't know. And that's why I pull the barriers out that I do and say, let's talk more about the fact that we have racial discrimination that impacts us. We have slavery that has impacted us for generations. We have a wealth gap that has a huge impact on our community and therefore it also impacts intimacy. So would a black couple living in a different country, living in Ghana or, or somewhere where they're the majority, be able to have better intimate relationships with each other than those living here in the United States? Say that again because you froze for a moment. Let me just make sure that the connection's going well. Um, okay. What I said was, would a black couple living in a different country where they are the majority, pick, uh, I'm using Ghana for an example, or I don't know, mm -hmm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. Do those couples have a better chance of intimacy than cu black couples living here in the United States? Mm. That would be a great research study for sure. Um, I think that what would happen is because you are in a space where you're more welcome, where you're feeling more welcome and accepted and culturally accepted, that it would certainly have an impact on the level of intimacy that you might be able to attain. Now, I don't know if that would be true for Black Americans who move there, because they could experience some discrimination as well, for all I know. At the same time, I can say that having lived all over the world, that I can see a vast difference just in a feeling of safety. I have lived in countries where I felt safer than living in America. Mm. What countries? I've lived in Japan. I've lived in Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia. I've visited Tanzania. Um, in all of these places, Dr. Janelle, you felt safer than here in the United States. I felt safer. I didn't have people walking around watching me while I was in a store. I could shop without being harassed. So you suggest safe. What, what part of the country are you in, if you don't mind me asking? I live in South Carolina now. South Carolina. And I have felt unsafe in South Carolina many times. And are you married? I'm not anymore. You're not? No. And do you believe that your relationship... Uh, ended because of the uh, the lack of intimacy? My relationship ended because the man I was married to was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Not by me, by the U.S. government. And as a result, decided that he no longer wanted to be in a relationship with me because I was requesting change. Mm, that's a very tough position to be in. Yes, it is. Now, did you notice when you were in the marriage, was there, were you experiencing the same 
intimacy issues that you're now helping your clients with? Oh, and at a higher level, as a matter of fact, I knew for many years that something was wrong. But at the time, I didn't work on personality disorders. So as a licensed family therapist, that wasn't something I was keen on looking for. Um, And so from 2006 until the time in which we divorced, he had been going to therapy. And I kept asking the therapist, why isn't something happening? (laughs) There should be some change, some difference. And there wasn't until um, he got to back to Japan at one point. And at that point, he became completely dysregulated and they were able to see it. But it was, gosh, 20 years in easily. Well, one of the things, not to derail us, but one of the things that you learn from people with those types of personality disorders, Mm -hmm. especially narcissism and borderline and those kind of things, uh, quite often they're using the data that they're collecting from the psychologists Mm -hmm. to only further their uh, behaviors to only improve and 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 enhance their egregious manipulative behaviors. That is true. I found that to be true, and right. particularly because the last session that we had together, if you will, finally I should say, because I wasn't really allowed to be included in that. Um, his when I walked in, his therapist said, "Oh, today I'm learning some new things, and I'm so eager to talk to you." And I literally looked at him and said, well, tell me what you're learning that's new. And it basically was everything that I thought he was in therapy working on. <laughs> there you the go. Very beginning. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, back to the more uh, uh, pressing subject and the more interesting mm-hmm. subject, at least for this discussion is this black intimacy. Cause I find this, I find this to be fascinating stuff that you're mm-hmm. digging into and that you're helping people with. So you're, you're saying first and foremost, people here in the United States are African American. They feel less safe. They have a higher level of anxiety due to that feeling of less safe. And they take those levels of anxiety with them into their own homes. And that right off the rip is blocking them from reaching certain intimacy levels. Is that fair to say? That's that's a pretty good synopsis. I think it's It's bigger than just feeling unsafe. It is the experience of the racism. It is the systemic nature. It is um, the institutional nature. And it is um, racism that has been embedded in the culture. So it's not just a matter of not feeling safe, emotionally safe, or physically safe. It is that your life is completely engulfed with a racist environment that prohibits you from being able to make moves and leaps and jumps into other areas that could allow you the freedom to be more open to intimacy in all the areas that I speak of. Do you believe that that feeling is present uniformly throughout every single town in our country? Oh, I can't say that everybody is a monolith, but I can say that we have systemic and institutional and cultural racism within the United States. That can't be argued. I mean, it could. Sure. But 
we can argue that whether or not, you know, the air is made of oxygen or not. Well, you know, one of the things that I always I agree, there's clearly racism. There's there's bigotry Mm -hmm. everywhere and there's Mm -hmm. systemic racism and, and there's and probably more prevalent in certain areas than there are in other areas, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we've also gotten so far uh, from where we were. It wasn't too long ago that we had a black president in the office. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, don't you think that, you know, years ago, I remember Tupac's lyrics, you know, basically saying that we'll never live to see a black president. And shortly thereafter, Barack Obama came along and was voted into office. Mm-hmm. That's so, true. So I do think that while there may be some of these uh, again, I'm not exposed to it maybe as much, mm-hmm. but I do think as a country, we have come a long way considering that our recent president, like I said, was African-American descent. So how does that change whether or not I experience racism in a way that prohibits me from being able to be more intimate or to be more successful in this environment. How does President Barack Obama's being voted in impact me as a person? I don't know how it does. Mm. But I do know that, that I mm-hmm. do know that if it was if we were systemically across the board, everyone was a I'm, I'm going extreme here. If mm-hmm. systemically across the board, every single person was a racist, quote unquote, they wouldn't be voting oh. a black person into uh, to the highest office that one can achieve. Is that so I think you're you're thinking individual level, and I'm talking about a system. So a system that's created for the express purpose of being racist against a people does not necessarily mean that there's not one person within the system who is making attempts at changing that. Yes. But the system itself is already a moving train. And so each time that we're trying to make adjustments, then there's someone on the backside trying to make adjustments as well. I mean, we can see that in the Voting Rights Act. We can see that. Well, we came to the place where we got voting rights under LBJ, right? And then over the course of time, there's been redlining in order to ensure that Black people can't necessarily vote for those they want to vote for. So we'll put a line through their community such that now they have to only vote for this person or that person, right? We can look at it from the perspective that even if we go as far back as Reconstruction, we had more African-Americans voted into office then than we do today. But a system was set up such that You had to know how many jelly beans were in a jar. I mean, we're talking what's really, I mean, super systemic. How many jelly beans are in a jar? Um, Taking a citizenship test that was more challenging than the one that's given today for those who are coming into the country. So even if we go that far back and then we get to today, where even now it is you have to have not just an ID, but you need a real ID and you need a real ID that costs 50, 60, $100, depending on where you live. And if you're in a community 
that's already marginalized, where you're only making enough to feed your family, then just having ID doesn't even allow you to vote. Systemic racism. So you believe that because of that, but when your clients come into you and they're saying, hey, we're coming in because we are having some kind of relationship issue. Mm-hmm. And you point, is that the first thing you do with, with a black couple? You point them to the systemic racism and say, this is where it all starts from? Oh, absolutely not. You don't? No. So where do you point them then? How do you know? How do you, because you said that that's really the thing that you, that that's really the thing that's kind of the foundation for all of these issues when it comes no, to the I, I didn't say it's the found, it's the foundation for the issues. What I said is it's the barriers. It creates barriers that keep people from being able to go into their homes, light, empty, void of the confusion and chaos on the outside. So now I come through the doors already ready for a fight because I've been living all day in fight, flight, or freeze. I don't know what's going to happen in the course of a given day just because. Whereas there are other cultures that know they're not going to experience racism in various ways. So when I walk through the doors, I'm already carrying the irritation from the fact that someone who should not have gotten the raise that was truly due me, we can look at the numbers, we can look at how I connect with people, we can even look at my sales, et cetera, et cetera. But because he's white, he got the promotion or because he knows someone potentially, his family knows someone, he got the promotion and I didn't. Now I have a level of irritation and frustration that I come through the door with. And suddenly I don't have the ability to fully express what that is or what that feels like. And I could say I'm angry or I'm mad, but really I feel rejected and disappointed, hopeless even. And if the vocabulary doesn't exist for expressing that, those emotions, then it can be difficult to say to your partner, I need 20 minutes to decompress because, and give them that scenario. And over a period of time, that just becomes angst that exists within a household that you may not ever see has to do with racism. So no, I'm not pointing people to racism. I'm pointing them to how to manage their emotions, how to express those emotions, how to be open enough to recognize that they're experiencing those emotions. Mm. And then how to connect around them in such a way that they now are able to shield one another when they're home, hold one another, give one another the safety they can't get outside their household. So in that example that you just gave Mm. and he comes home and says, I didn't get the promotion. The white person got the promotion. Mm. That doesn't always mean that there was a racist motive behind it. Okay. Right. I could agree with that. Okay. So I think the first thing that, that we're, that you have to consider, I would imagine in these situations is like you pointed out, helping 
them kind of, again, compartmentalize their emotions. Why am I feeling this way? Was it unjust? Regardless of what the reasoning was for the employer giving the raise, how do I now manage that emotion? Is that really what you're doing to help them? I don't ask people to compartmentalize them because when you do that, you basically shut them off from the rest of your life. And that's not what I'm saying you need to do. What I'm saying is have a deeper understanding of what there are. They are. We're only born with six emotions. They're surprise, disgust, fear, anger, um, happiness, and sadness. That's what we're born with. After that, you have to be taught what the others are and what they look like and what they feel like. And if you grew up in a family that didn't have an expression for a range of emotions, then having that discussion becomes that much more difficult. And one of the reasons why a lot of families don't have the range of emotions is because they were blunted. They weren't allowed to have emotions. And we can take that back once again to slavery, because how dare you demonstrate as a slave any emotion other than what I tell you to do? Mm. So this is really a generational after generational thing. And you're trying And you're trying to help these people break free of the chains of decades or centuries of oppression. And Absolutely. I'm trying to help my community, my African-American community, find their voice and be empowered in their ability to move their families and their households forward in a healthy, strategic, resilient way. Right. And you're doing that, let's, before we get finished it up here, you're doing that how? Because, okay, you reckon, you're highlighting the, the, the issue. You're highlighting one of the co- main causes of this issue. How then do you say, okay, this has been the system, this has been decades, this has been a long time. We can't change things overnight, but we can change the way we react to things. We can change our mentality, our approach inside the, the family unit. What are some of the pieces of advice that you take them through? Yeah, so I in my book, I talk a great deal about various couples who go through learning to communicate again, um, learning to regulate their emotions, understanding uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs from a relational perspective, transitioning from being rela- being transitional in their connection to relational in their connection understanding whether or not they are living with mental illness um, and what the difference is between mental wellness and mental illness. And really at the end of the day, um, my motto has been for a very long time that the greatest generational wealth we can bestow is mental and emotional wellness. Because at, at any turn, Money that we can give will be squandered if we don't know and understand how to manage not just the finance, but our emotional and mental wellness. This is very deep. This is a very deep thing that you do. And I am going to tell you that it's hard from someone who's in my shoes to fully Mm -hmm. understand, obviously. And I'll be the first to admit that. Well, that's the other reason I wrote the book is because many of my colleagues who don't look like me also have that challenge. Mm -hmm. And so I break this down in a way that should help 
in one way or another, everyone who's reading it to stop for a moment and go, that could be true. And if it is, what am I going to do about it? Absolutely. Into me, see, as we talked about, we've linked that in the show notes. If you guys want to see more about the book, click the link. You could order the book online. And um, fascinating stuff, Dr. Janelle, that you're doing, that you're working on. Yeah. Where would you like people to uh, learn more? You have a website where, where people can find you. Yes. So TMICounselingandcoaching.com is the website. And Dr. Janelle, J-E-A-N-N-E-L-L-E, so D-R-J-E-A-N-N-E-L-L-E is my Instagram. And then D-R-J-E-A-N-N-E-L-L-E-L-M-F-T is where they can find me on TikTok. Mm. And I notice you don't like people sending you DMs trying to take you out on dates. <laughs> it's the mildest thing. You it's can't get just, rid of all these DMs, huh? They're flooding through. It's, it's funny to me. It is really funny. Um, I, I don't know. It's the, the wave of social media, I guess. And yeah, people say some of the strangest things in there and then get mad at me for not responding. <laughs> so really interesting well you've got to be a you, you can't be the easiest person to date because you know all the, the the tricks you know all the, the mindsets and the psychologies i'm just me <laughs> i really am i'm just me so i you know i'm comfortable in my own skin so i hope that whomever comes my way will also be comfortable in theirs and let me just ask to finish it off when we're talking intimacy, this is, and you kind of touched on it, but this is way more than just the physical. Oh, yeah. Cognitive, emotional, correct? Yes, cognitive, emotional, spiritual, and physical. It's about looking beyond what you see in the physicality of a person to see who they truly are from the inside out. Mm, beautiful. Dr. Janelle, thank you so much for shedding light into this topic that not many people are talking about. Uh, this has been mm-hmm. nice. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.